Law, liberty, life in Jesus, knowing how it all works. Galatians, this is part seven. So here and in the other rooms, South Sanctuary, Fellowship Hall, at home, get a Bible. This is quite a text we have this morning. I said to Rini as, as we were walking down the hallway coming out, I said, this is really an involved text. And I say this to your credit, most churches are not ready to study a text like this in a Sunday morning sermon. But I think we are. We've been doing this kind of study for a long, long time. This is a very involved text. But if you'll do the work, it's got some rich, applicable truths for all of our lives. The title that I chose for this teaching is, Why Our Best Religious Efforts Can Never Produce a Free or Holy Life. Why our best religious efforts can never produce a free or holy life. And we're looking at Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21. Galatians 2, 15 to 21. Paul is still dealing with Peter. Remember Peter who would fellowship with the Gentiles and eat at table with the Gentiles until visitors came from Jerusalem, heavyweights, came from Jerusalem. And as soon as Peter saw them, he would have nothing to do with the Gentiles anymore. And Paul confronts him on this. And this text is a continuation of Paul's remarks to Peter. That's what, that's what we're looking at. So Paul, in confronting Peter's foolishness, Paul says this, Galatians 2.15, we are Jews by birth and not, quotes, Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because... By the works of the law, no human being will be justified. That's okay so far. Now it gets really complicated. 17. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners, while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Wow, what, what is that all about? Absolutely not. 18. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Let's just pray. Your word is living and good, though not always simple. It is worth our best efforts to have your Holy Spirit cut through to our hearts with truth. 
And so let your word be living. Let it speak to our hearts in this passage, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I said earlier, it's important to remember the context of these verses. Start there. Paul is continuing his argument with Peter about the behavior of Peter and Barnabas at Antioch. That's in verses 11 to 13 of this chapter. And so Peter, after experiencing this revelation from God, remember the sheet that came down with all these animals, arise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I've never eaten any of these things under the old covenant. Peter, don't you call unclean anything that I say is clean. That changed, that was a game changer. Peter was free to eat. Peter was free to fellowship with Gentile believers in the church at Antioch. That is, he did so until certain Jewish teachers, leaders, came from the church in Jerusalem. And when Peter saw them come to Antioch, all of a sudden he'd have nothing to do with these unclean Gentiles anymore. And he reverts to the old covenant with all of its regulations so Paul, he confronted him publicly about this. Peter's actions carried such weight. Peter was an apostle. And Peter's actions carried such weight in the New Testament church that Paul said by separating himself from the Gentiles, Peter was, 2.14, compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews. And that's wrong. And that's why Paul's rebuke to Peter at least by our standards today, we're a pretty tolerant bunch. It seems pretty harsh. This is why Paul's rebuke of Peter was so public. The rebuke had to be public because Peter's offense was so public. Peter wasn't just making some private, personal decision about his religious preferences. His actions were so visible and so forthright that he was swaying the church away from the gospel. And Paul's trying desperately to undo the effects of Peter's foolish actions. That's where we are. So our text today is a continuation of Paul's argument with Peter on this important subject. The verses, I said, they're very complex. Some of the toughest in this letter. But they shouldn't be skimmed over just because of that. Uh, these verses don't just pull apart neatly for, you know, point one, two, three in a sermon. The overall thrust of Paul's argument is to show Peter and to show us that Peter's actions are just totally inconsistent with any meaningful embrace of the cross. I will cling. We sang it. I will cling to the old rugged cross. Peter wasn't doing that. Paul is going to show that either justification comes from faith in Christ alone, like we sang, or it comes through religious works and regulations, but it can't come through both. That's what Paul is saying. You got to pick. So in other words, to jump to the very end of Paul's argument... Whenever anything is added to faith in Jesus Christ, you destroy the gospel. 
That's in Galatians 2.21. I do not, look at these words, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for, for nothing. If the gospel is supplemented, it's ruined. If the gospel is supplemented, it's ruined. Let's work through some of the key points. Are you ready? You got to be with me. Point number one. First, this wonderful text. This is a wonderful text to show the practical importance of sound theology for safe Christian living. I thought I should say that first because there's such a tendency to think, okay, theology, doctrine, that's great for you eggheads in the seminary. You're, you got to study this stuff. But I just, I just want to follow Jesus and, and live a good Christian life. So don't, don't give me this doctrinal theological stuff. This text shows the opposite. Look at Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Here's theology. Remember, this is for the benefit of the whole church. We are Jews by birth, Paul says to Peter, and not, and not Gentile sinners. Notice the quotation marks. I want to talk about that. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we, Paul says to Peter, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, please notice... Please notice what Paul is doing here. The point I'm making is that this kind of sound theology, the first point, this kind of sound theology is good for safe Christian living. Think of what Paul might have said to Peter. What is, what is the proper response that a church should have, that you should have, what is the proper response to someone who, not just someone who, who likes a different style of worship or a different style of service, I don't mean that, but someone who clearly does not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and distorts it. What's the proper response to that? Because it's all over the place today. There's a lot of things Paul could have said to Peter. I could see if Peter were in a contemporary church, Paul might have said, Peter, you... You really need to pray and, I mean, who am I to judge? But you just need to pray and seek God about what you're thinking. A lot of people would say that, especially in a charismatic kind of way. You know what? Let's just let the Holy Spirit deal with brother so-and-so. Or, Peter, you're not being very loving to these new Gentile Christians. You should really try and be a little more tolerant and a little more compassionate. I could see a lot of people saying that. And the teaching point is this. Neither of those is what Paul does. In verses 15 and 16, Paul starts by showing Peter the things that both, Peter and Paul, both of them know to be true theologically. I mean, notice the emphasis on their common shared beliefs in those two verses, 15 and 16. 
Paul says, Paul says two things about both himself and Peter. He says two things. He says they were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's in 15. That's the first thing he says. And we've got to figure out what that means. Peter were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And then he says they both knew that, quotes, a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's in verse 16. Peter learned that when that vision came down with all the animals on the sheet. Paul learned it when he was knocked off his donkey on the road to Damascus and had this revelation of Jesus. They both learned that. But we need to look carefully at that first point from verse 15. What does Paul mean when he says, quotes, we are Jews by birth and not, it's right there. Do you still have that slide up? I can't turn around and see. Not Gentile sinners. We're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, you have to ask, does Paul mean that both he and Peter were sinless? Well, no. Is he claiming moral perfection for himself and for Peter? We're not. We're Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. Is he saying they're both sinless? And it, that can't be because, because 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners. So it can't mean that. What does he mean when he says, we are Jews by birth, Peter, you and I, and not Gentile sinners? He means, he means that he and Peter have lived their whole lives keeping the Jewish laws of purity. They were circumcised. They separated themselves from anything unclean. So he means, Peter, we haven't lived like the Gentiles. So, so he's trying to show that both he and Peter share this common Jewish Old Covenant heritage. They have lived with purity with all those regulations of the Old Covenant. That's what he means. We're not like the Gentiles. They didn't keep any of those laws. Peter, you and I, we're not like those Gentile sinners. We've lived in purity under the Old Covenant. The reason I'm pointing that out, this distinct meaning of sinner in verse 15, is it's going to become very important when we look at verse 17. And we'll get to that in just a second. But let me go back just for a minute to the importance of sound theology for safe Christian living. Paul is linking himself up with Peter in verse 15 and 16. He realizes that Peter knows better than he is living at this moment. That's the problem. He knows that Fear of those religious leaders is turning Peter into a fearful hypocrite just for the moment. But the important starting point for this study is seeing how Paul deals with this kind of error. He, he calls Peter back to some basic theology that he should know. This does relate to us, people. There's application here. 
sound understanding matters. We will all, you, you're an electrician, you're a plumber, you're a carpenter, you're an accountant, you're a teacher. We will all, in our Christian walk, either be driven by what we understand, what we know, or we will be driven by what we feel at the moment. Peter feels fear. Peter feels intimidation. What he knows to be true, Paul reminds him, isn't steering Peter's life right now. His fear of these religious leaders is what's steering his life. The, these are the only two internal engines, apart from the Holy Spirit. These are the two internal engines on our part. It's, it, it's crucial to remember that there are no other options. What Peter was feeling in Antioch was pressure, intimidation, fear. And like all of us, his feelings had more immediate power over his actions than his knowledge. We all have this tendency, church. We all have this tendency to give more weight to our feelings than to our doctrines, our understanding. That's because our feelings, they're more immediate. Uh, they're more compelling than the stuff, the ideas we hold in our head. We almost automatically think of our feelings as our real self. Hence, all the talk today about a person's orientation, how they feel inside. When we meet someone, we haven't seen them for a while, we want to know how they're doing, we almost always come up and say, how are you, you feeling? We don't say, what are you thinking? And the assumption behind that question is, well, the feelings reveal the real state of the person more than their beliefs. But the feelings, though, are blind guides. I'm thinking of Peter here. Paul's trying to give Peter some theological understanding, and Peter isn't listening because he's driven by his feelings of fear. They're blind guides feelings. We need truth. We need knowledge. We need understanding. We need revealed truth of the scriptures. I was reading, this isn't, uh, this isn't in any of the slides or anything up there. I was looking at uh, Colossians. Colossians 3.10. And Paul talks about how lives get changed. He says 9 and 10, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. Okay, that sounds so easy, but we all know it's not easy to do, right? But look what he says next. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. He doesn't just say you're being renewed into the image of your creator. Did you notice? You're being renewed in knowledge of the image of your creator. Paul says to this church, just like us, you got to put off the old self, you got to put on the new self. And he could have just left it at willpower or just pray about it. But he says, no, you're being renewed in knowledge of the image of your creator. So that, it seems to me, is the basic starting point here. What I'm trying to say under this first point we tend to think theology is it's for pastors, seminary students, teachers, 
but it's miles from the truth. Sound theology is the Holy Spirit's way of keeping your life out of a mess. That's how he works. Point number two. A living faith in Jesus Christ must override, two words, override and replace any other commitment to any other plan for self-improvement before God. And now we come to some really interesting but potentially confusing verses. 17 and 18. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners, note the quotation marks, that's important. While seeking to be justified by Christ. And then this crazy question. Is Christ then a promoter of sin? What would make Paul ask that of Peter? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. What in the world does that mean? It's important to understand the sense in which Paul uses that term, this one, sinners. It's in quotation marks in verse 17. Because... He's using it in exactly the same way when he used it in verse 15. I said it was going to be important. Where Paul said, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Do you see that in your Bible? Okay, that's in 15. We're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. So, we keep the old covenant law. We're not like those Gentile sinners. That's exactly the same way that he's using it. In verse 17, we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ. Is Christ then a promoter of sin? They're tricky verses. And you need to follow Paul's logic. It goes like this. If it truly were a sin to eat with the Gentiles, remember, he's trying to straighten Peter out. If it truly were a sin to eat with the Gentiles, then Jesus would be a minister of sin because it was through faith in Jesus Christ that they both started eating with the Gentiles, right? Right? Faith in Jesus Christ meant they didn't have to keep circumcision and all the table laws and all the fellowship laws. They didn't have to because they were believers in Jesus Christ. Paul's trying to get Peter to understand this. They can eat with the Gentiles. They don't have to keep the old covenant. If it's a sin to eat with the Gentiles, well, then Christ is behind it because it's through faith in him that we're not doing the old covenant anymore. So that's what he means when he says, is Christ then a promoter of sin? It was because of their faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross that Peter and Paul had both embraced their Gentile brothers and sisters. So yes, if it were a sin, it's not. But if it were a sin to eat with Gentile believers, then yeah, Christ would have been a minister of sin. But it's not a sin to eat with Gentile believers, and Christ is not a minister of sin. You can see how Paul is still dealing with the false teaching of the Judaizers. That's the enemy here. These Judaizers. Listen. They're the same sectarian crowd 
that was prepared to write Jesus off because Matthew 9, 10, he ate with publicans and sinners. If you have always read those verses all your life and thought that what bugged the Pharisees was that Jesus hung around with bad people, that's how the text usually gets preached. That's not what that text is saying. What that text is saying, these Pharisees and religious leaders were writing Jesus off because he would eat with Gentiles and everybody else, the people that were unclean. So Paul is still defending this pure gospel of faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing else. And here's the point for us today. We, we minister the gospel. We, in our lives, carry the gospel. In a world full of religious systems and beliefs, don't we? Okay, how are we going to proclaim it? What are we going to say? We raised close to $300,000 taking the gospel all over the world to all sorts of people. And I'll tell you what, most of them have other religious beliefs already that don't include Jesus Christ. What are we going to say to these people? What shall we say to people who hear of Jesus after they've already given their devotion to other religious systems that leave Jesus out of the picture? What do we say to people like that? See, this isn't truth that's far removed from us. It's at the heart of what we do here. Paul's very clear. The commitment to Jesus Christ, God the Son, as the only Savior and only Lord, that has to override and it has to replace any other religious system that leaves Jesus out of the picture. That's what it means. Nothing else works without Jesus, be it penance, in the Roman Catholic Church, or sacrifice, or prayers, or regulations, or diets, or books, or angelic visitations, or dreams, or visions, or anything else, none of that justifies a person before God without faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is never honored if it's supplemented. The gospel is never honored if it's supplemented, I know you got your mask on, mumble those words with me. The gospel is never honored if it's supplemented. So no, Christ is not a minister of sin because he frees us from the old covenant. He's a minister of freedom from religious systems that rely on human works and human accomplishment. Point number three, are you still with me? The real sin is not eating with Gentiles. Remember, Paul's still trying to straighten Peter out here. The real sin is not eating with Gentiles. The real sin is choosing another road to righteousness rather than trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ. I get that in 18 and 19. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Again, awkward sentences. Here's what Paul is saying. The real sin isn't eating with Gentiles or eating pork 
or refusing circumcision. That's not the issue anymore. The real sin for these Judaizers was rebuilding a religious system that had finally been fulfilled and completed and removed through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says he finally came to see that the whole purpose of the law was to establish his guilt and the futility of trying to attain righteousness through the keeping of the law. He said that right here, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now, many troubling questions finally get their answer right here. I mean, when you finally understand what Paul is saying in those two verses, you discover something more revolutionary than you might see at first glance. This is why all other religions, get this, this is why all other religions, even when practiced very sincerely and faithfully, none of them can ever be pleasing to God. Religion without Jesus is truly wicked. It's not just a little bit less effective than the gospel. Religion without Jesus can never be pretty good. No. No. Have you ever seen that stunning truth revealed in the scriptures? It is a sin to reject God's final word in Jesus Christ in favor of some other religious system. That's what Paul is saying to Peter. Rejecting Jesus Christ, even for other religious pursuits, is the greatest sin of all. This is the reason why all outside of Christ, even very sincerely religious people, need to come to repentance. That's our message. It has to be our message. We cling to the old rugged cross when dozens of church leaders try and pull it out of our hands. So the real ministers of sin, verse 17, they aren't those who proclaim freedom, pardon, salvation in Christ alone. No. The real ministers of sin are those who offer another foundation for a relationship with God. Point number four. Here's how Paul's going to wrap this up. So how does one know if he or she is personally committed to Jesus Christ in a saving way. Here you sit, here I stand, we're all together. How do we know we're saved? I mean, do you ever ask that? How do we know? I think I am. I said a sinner's prayer. I go to church, I'm here pretty faithfully. Bet you I attend church more than most of you. Of course, I get paid for it. How do you know? This is why Paul wraps up with these words. You know them. Are they on the screen? Yes. 
let's pretend when I ask a question, let's pretend like I'm talking to you, okay? Let's read this all out loud, all right? Loudly. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer lived, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Wow. I want to show you why I think Paul wraps up with these words. It's a dense, I think you've seen it, it's a densely theological passage. It's one apostle talking to another and we're eavesdropping. I think you can see why Paul wraps up with these words. It would be easy, especially for these meticulous Jewish people, but also for any thinking person today. You can, you can start to think, you know what, I think there's a flaw in Paul's argument. If we are saved through faith in Christ, plus nothing else, if justification is not according to works of righteousness that we do at all, here's the question. What, what happens to holiness in Christianity? Right? I mean, if the law... You're not saved by keeping the law. You're not saved by religious observance. What happens to holiness? Why, why will people who are freely justified by grace plus nothing, why will they care about being righteous? Now, Paul answers these objections. This is how he closes. Not by denying justification by faith, but rather by boldly defining what genuine faith in Christ is all about. We're almost done now, so try and stay with me. Here's my thoughts. A. Conversion only comes after an experience of personal crucifixion analogous to Christ's own crucifixion. I get that in that first part of verse 20. I have been crucified, there's the word, with Christ. And I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Paul's order is really significant. Personal conversion. When is a person saved? In this thinking, Paul's thinking here, personal conversion is only as genuine as personal crucifixion. Personal conversion is only as genuine as personal crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. So the degree of new spiritual life, new birth, will accord to the finality of personal crucifixion of my old self. So this is Paul's answer. This is Paul's answer to those who would want to carry on a lifestyle of just personal self-seeking, personal self-fulfillment, while proclaiming they've been justified by grace. Exactly, Paul wants to know. 
exactly what part of self-life is still alive. Your choices? Well, that was supposed to be crucified on the cross. The emotions? Anger, bitterness, revenge? How can those emotions be stirred if the person is dead? My mom and dad are both dead, buried in the cemetery. They haven't been angry at anything since. That's what, it, that's what it means to be crucified with Christ. Resentment, anger. How, how could those things be manifested? You've been crucified with Christ. Ambition, greed, pride. What kind of independent future plans or desires or ambitions does a dead person actually have? I wonder, I wonder how many of us still languish in the starting gate of what could be a very profound Christian walk simply because whatever life we placed on the cross when we got saved winced at the prospect of the painful end of crucifixion and jumped back onto the ground and walked away. See, in Jesus' day, there was a Roman guard. We read about this unnamed man. He's in the gospel accounts and it was his sole assignment to go back to the cross after the crucifixion and they would break the legs or pierce the side of the victims to make sure they were really dead. I have been crucified with Christ. Really? Really dead? It's in poetry. B. Here's what else Paul means when he talks about conversion. My new life in Christ Jesus is maintained solely by faith in Christ Jesus with a deep, sustained contemplation of his love for me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We sang it. Weak, I talked about it. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. Paul will go on living, even though the self, he's been crucified with Christ, but he still writes these words. He's still alive. But, but a life of self-crucifixion, it's impossible to sustain just in our own strength with willpower and guts. Where, where, where does the divine fuel for this kind of commitment, where does it come from? Well, Paul says Christ now lives in him. So his conversion wasn't just a paper transaction. And he says there were two things that motivate him. Here's where I wrap up. Two things that motivate Paul. What crucified with Christ means, Christ living in him. Paul says there are two things that drive my life. First, he lived a life of faith. The life I now live in the body, I live right there, by faith. That means he looked to Jesus continually. Paul, even though trained as a devout Jew, he wouldn't put his trust in the law, or in the temple, or in his circumcision, or in his training as a Pharisee. He constantly looked to Jesus Christ, looking to Jesus. Do you still do that? Do you still do that? 
Do, do, do you get caught up in what you do in the church, the activity you have in the church? Is there something in your heart that still finds beauty in Jesus? That you read the Gospels, you think about Jesus. You train yourself to, to not just go by religious habit or routine, your upbringing. It's precious to have a good upbringing. I had one. But that's not the same as looking to Jesus. That's looking to your upbringing. Secondly, so he lived the life of faith looking to Jesus. And secondly, he focused specifically on the love of Christ for him. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here's what Jesus did. He loved me. And he gave himself for me. Paul, Paul breathed this in like oxygen. Keep yourself in the love of God. In another place, he says, in writes to the church at Corinth, and he says the love of Christ constrains him in his life and ministry. I mentioned the other place where he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Holiness, does it matter? Oh, it matters. It matters. But you can't get it just through willfully performing religious duty. Holiness is meant to spring from grateful devotion, not dull obligation. And so Paul, he kept his mind trained on the cross of Christ. And this reminded him of his twofold calling to crucify his old life with its passions and to rejoice in the liberating love of God. Well, that's a passage and a half. Did you all stay with me? You did well. You, did, you can see why Peter writes later on. And he says, you know, Paul writes some of that stuff. Wow, is he ever hard to understand? Peter actually says that. Teach us more and more to cling, cling to the old rugged cross. Teach us to crucify the old self. Teach us to live by faith that always looks to Jesus. And teach us to remember and rejoice in the love, the undeserved love. Behold, John says, what manner of love he has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I guess what we're asking, Lord, is that you keep our faith living, vibrant, that we never think of ourselves as completed and done, but moving ahead in faith, moving ahead in rejoicing in the love of Christ, moving ahead in understanding the gospel, a rich, deep understanding of the gospel. We love you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.